With that, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Lord, we thank you for this season. This season that reminds us it's okay to be discontent. To have a holy discontent about the way things are in this world. Lord, we pray against racism in our world, in our nation, in this city, on this campus, in our hearts. We pray against it in the name of Jesus. And we pray for all our brothers and sisters who are wounded by it regularly. And we pray for all of us who are ignorant about it regularly, that you will bring healing, that you will open lives and hearts and minds to a deeper understanding and deeper compassion and to justice. And Lord, we grieve in this season of Advent that many of our classmates will be going home and there will be somebody missing. Too many of our students have lost parents this semester. Too many of us are grieving. And so we have holy discontent about that. We hate death. We hate sin. And we long for it to just be over. We have discontent about our own sin and the things that we can't quite shake off and the new behaviors we can't quite take on. Lord, these things are so frustrating to us. And they can weigh us down. So it is a good thing in this season of Advent to light candles of hope, peace, joy, and love. These things which call us out of holy discontent into holy hopefulness, holy action, holy peacefulness, holy joy, holy sacrificial love. And so keep calling us, Lord, not just to discontent, but to act out of our discontent to truly be people who change things. We pray, Lord, for all for whom these next 10 days are filled with incredible stress, for all for whom this is their first round of college exams and they're not quite sure what to expect, for all the classes we took that we didn't like and we're just ready to be done with. Lord, help us to be faithful all the way to the end. And then, Lord, if there is a professor or two who really influenced us, and he or she may not even know it, then give us the chance to say thank you. Help us to be grateful to those who teach us, to those who serve us in the residence halls, to those who are our mentors, to those who serve us food. Lord, before we leave this campus and go home, may we express our gratitude for all the people you have placed in our lives who have allowed us to flourish this semester. God, we thank you for this season that reminds us that this isn't all there is, that someday you will come back, Lord Jesus. You will come again in glory, as the creed says, to judge the living and the dead. You will come again, and your kingdom will have no end. And that's why we can sing even when we're sad, and that's why we can eat festive food even when our appetites are a little off because we know that this isn't all there is. And so help us to long for your kingdom and to work for it every day. 
And as we turn to your word, we pray that you open it up and Holy Spirit, come into our midst. Break our hearts for the things that break yours. And we ask this through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. I invite you to turn to Isaiah 42. Isaiah 42 can be found in your Pew Bibles on page 584. Isaiah 42. We're reading the first four verses, just a short section of scripture. Isaiah, as many of you know, was a prophet. And uh, he's considered a major prophet because he wrote a very long book. But he's also a major prophet because he keeps pointing to what is yet to come. He keeps pointing toward the Messiah. And this section here in Isaiah 42 is one in which he points and he says, look, look, look what's coming. Here is my servant, he says, whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break. And a dimly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be crushed until he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his teaching. This is the word of the Lord. This is my friend Ralph. I know, isn't that just an adorable picture? You can go, ah, that's okay. Yeah. So Ralph, as some of you know, works here at Calvin College. He's worked here for several years as our assistant dean for judicial affairs. This means that if a student gets into trouble, Ralph tries to help them get out of trouble and make better choices in the future. So that's Ralph's job on this campus. And this week, Ralph talked with some of us in the student life leadership team about race and about his experience as a black man in America. And with his permission, I'm going to tell you part of the story that Ralph told us. Since he was 16 and got his license to drive, as many of us did when we were 16, Ralph has been pulled over 22 times. 22 times. Three of those were for legitimate reasons. He, he freely admits that. Legitimate reasons, he got a ticket, well earned. Six of those times were because he fit the description of someone that the police were looking for. And the other times are kind of a hodgepodge of things. Once he was pulled over because his graduation tassel was hanging on his mirror. Did you know that that's against the law? Once he was pulled over because um, there was a sticker in his window that was obstructing, they said, his ability to see, a sticker much like all of us who have cars on campus have in our windows. Once he was told that the little light that lights up your license plate on the back of your car, that the bulb there was too dim. These are the reasons why he got pulled over. He's been driving for 20 years-ish, pulled over 22 times. 
You could take that down now, Paul. I have been driving for almost 30 years. I have been pulled over five times. Three legitimate, totally legitimate tickets. Speeding, I drive too quickly. Hello, my name is Mary, I drive too quickly. Yes, <laughs> it's true. It should be like 10, it's three. The other two times, once I was pulled over because I had my brights on in a residential area. Apparently that was bothersome to that police officer. Um, and then the other time was, um, oh shoot, I remembered what it was today. Oh, the little sticker that you get when you register your plates. Like, I was just one day into the new month and I hadn't put my sticker on and I got pulled over for that. And they said, put your sticker on. I said, I, I sure, certainly will now. <laughs> so, Ralph, 20 years of driving, pulled over 22 times. Me, almost 30 years of driving, five times. But it's not just about statistics. Ralph's father also taught him what to do when he gets pulled over. He was taught, even before he got his license, that when you get pulled over by the cop, you take your wallet out, you put it on the dash, you get the paperwork out, the paperwork that is all perfectly prepared, and you lay that on the dash. Then you put your hands at 10 and 2, and when the officer approaches the car, you say, yes, sir, no, sir. May I reach for my wallet now, sir? May I reach for the item on the dash, sir? And if the police officer says, may I search your car? You say, of course you may, sir. My father never had to teach me anything about getting pulled over by the police. I don't think he's ever mentioned it. We never had to have that conversation. My brothers never had to have that conversation. But it's not just about statistics, and it's not just about what parents pass on to children. It's also about this. Ralph said to us that when a police officer approaches his car, Ralph knows that his main job at that moment is to manage that person's fear. His main job at that moment is to manage that person's fear. He said to me today when we were talking about it, he said, when I see those lights, go off in my rear view mirror, he says, a bomb goes off in my brain and I get panicky and I have to go through all the things that my dad said to me. When the lights go off in my rear view mirror, I have two emotional responses. One, I'm angry at myself for doing something stupid that got me pulled over. And the second is I'm embarrassed and I'm really praying no one knows me drives by right then. Right? Right? We're like... I have never in my life thought about what the police officer is feeling. I have never in my life had to manage that person's experience. I have always assumed that this person would treat me with respect. Ralph's experience and my experience are different because he is a black man and I'm a white woman. racism. And it would be really tempting to do this service and just sing the carols and maybe read a story about Mary and the angel and just go on through our lives, but it would be irresponsible for us as Christians to observe Advent 
without noting the deep wounds that so desperately need healing. It would be irresponsible for us here at Calvin College not to own our racism. It would be irresponsible for us not to name it in the place of worship. Because the truth is, racism is like a deep bruise on the souls of our friends. Ralph has a deep bruise on his soul. You know how it is when you have a bruise and somebody can just brush against it and you're like, ow, 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 ow. And if the person brushes against you and you say, ow, ow, and the person goes, what? What did I do? I hardly touched you. And you're like, oh, I, just, I, have, I have a huge bruise here. And the person says, oh, my goodness, I didn't know. I'm so sorry. What happened? That's a normal interplay. With a deep bruise of racism, something can happen like the events in Ferguson or the events in New York City or the comet section of the chimes. And it can cause immense pain because there is already a pre-existing deep bruise and anything that comes close to it causes incredible pain. And it does not help if those of us who are standing watching this person say, I hardly even hit you. This hardly even hit you. This hardly even has anything to do with you. What is the big deal? And if the person says, well, I got, you know, this racism bruise. And if our next line is, seriously? Let me see it. That's not that bad. Look, I've got a sexism bruise. That does not help. If our response is, let me see your bruise. Oh, that's not that bad. Suck it up. It's 2014. We have a black president. I think that bruise should be a lot smaller by now. That does not help. That actually makes it worse. What we say, we who are in the dominant majority white culture, what we get to say is, you're hurting. I'm so sorry. What happened? How can I help? Tell me the story of how you got this bruise. Tell me this story. I want to hear. I'm just going to sit here and listen. Now, this doesn't mean that every single person of color has a responsibility to talk with us about their bruise. Well, let me tell you the 27 times I've been pulled over. Because they actually have a life to live and classes to study for and exams to take. But our role for those of us who are brothers and sisters in Christ is if we are deeply bruised, we don't try to cover the bruise and pretend it's not there for the sake of everybody else. And when we brush up against somebody and they wince in response, we don't tell them that it didn't hurt. Isaiah, you know, here, he's talking about the Messiah. He's talking about Jesus. He doesn't know it yet. He just knows he's talking about the Messiah, the one who is to come, the anointed one. And he has this great description of who he's going to be. He says, he's going to be like this, a bruised reed 
he will not break, and a dimly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. So the person that Isaiah describes is someone who is incredibly strong and incredibly gentle, but someone who is relentless about justice. He's relentless about getting things right in this world, and we need this. Don't we just so need this? Don't you just feel this in you, how desperately we need Jesus to come back? This isn't a nice idea. This is like a visceral, gut, Jesus, we need you to come back feeling. This spring, right after, um, if you're a sophomore, junior, senior, right after y'all left, my staff and I did a two-day anti-racism workshop called CORE. And for two days, we learned about the history of racism in America and the different privileges that those of us who are white have and to pay attention to those things and all kinds of things, including microaggressions, like the little things you say that you don't even realize are hurtful. Like um, if there's somebody from a different racial background than you and you don't know them particularly well, but they've got really cool hair and you're like, hey, can I touch your hair? That's a weird thing to say. That's a microaggression. It's like, you're obviously different from me. May I see if you're real? It's like, what's that about? Right? So different microaggressions, and we learned about all these things, and it made me really sensitive and aware, but it did not cure me. Like, I've got a ways to go. Let me tell you a story that demonstrates this. So this fall, we hired Kyrie Williams, who is our new assistant dean for multicultural students. He is awesome. So the very first time I meet Kyrie, we are walking right here into the chapel, and he's with his boss, Christina. And Christina says to me, Mary, you've got to meet Kyrie. He's our new assistant dean. And I said, oh, that's so great. We've been waiting for you to come. We've been looking forward to having this position filled. <clears throat> and I said, Kyrie, I said, how do you spell your name? And he spelled it for me. I said, oh, that's great. And then we went and we sat right back there where y'all are sitting, right there. Yeah. And I sat next to him in chapel, and I thought, oh, crap. Was that a microaggression? Like, to, to ask him to spell his name? That felt incredibly comfortable, uncomfortable for 20 minutes. I'm like, oh, shoot. I'm supposed to know better. Crap, was that, was that like a thing? Did I just do a thing? Dang it. The whole chapel, right? 20 minutes, I'm doing this in my head. I had no idea what the chapel was about because I was all about, I'm an idiot. <laughs> so after the chapel, I say to Kyrie, remember, I've known him for 21 minutes. I say to Kyrie, hey, was it okay that I asked you to spell your name? Or was that a microaggression? And then I felt even stupider. Because <laughs> Kyrie is like, well, yeah, lots of people ask me how to spell my name. It's kind of an unusual name and an unusual spelling. And yeah, okay, yeah. And I'm just like, I am such an idiot. I am such an idiot. Gosh, I'm such an idiot. So if you are a person from the dominant culture, like myself, if you are a white person and you're thinking, I'm scared of doing this anti-racism stuff because I will get it wrong, come on board. <laughs> like, join us. We've had t-shirts made. I'm bad at anti-racism, but I really want to get better and Jesus is helping me. <laughs> okay? 
Now, that's an embarrassing story, and I still feel stupid telling it to you, but I want you to know that that's the kind of stuff we need to do if we're going to get better at this at Calvin College. We need to be willing to be stupid. We need to be willing to mess it up sometimes. We need to be willing to love sacrificially, and white people stop worrying about getting it right. Just do it. And people of color, do not feel like your part of your job at Calvin College is to educate all of us about your particular background and ethnicity and race and language and everything else. Like, live your life, okay? Live your life, be happy, be a student. And everybody gets, gets an I don't want to talk about it card if you're a person of color. White people, you do not get an I don't want to talk about it card. Do you know why? Because we have spent a lot of time playing that card. And we get to give all those back and start the game all over again. Because Jesus comes, you see. And he says, oh, you're, you're really bad at anti-racism at Calvin College? Like, is that a smoldering wick? Is it, like, almost out? Like, are you really, really bad at this at Calvin College? Is this, is this a little wick? Like, all of our lights here have become smoldering wicks. Have you noticed this? This was planned. No, it wasn't. Like all of our little wicks have become smoldering wicks. I don't even know if they're going to light again. But Jesus says, oh, really? Is that an issue for you? Because you know who I am? I'm the light of the world. This is what I do, people. You got yourself a smoldering wick? You're not so good at anti-racism? Okay. I can help you with that. We do that here. I got that. The success of the lighting of the candles is metaphorical and does not imply Jesus' lack of success in lighting this. <laughs> Jesus is like, you got a smoldering wick around anti-racism? You got a smoldering wick around this stuff? Like, I'm the light of the world. I can do this. And for those of you who are deeply bruised, for whom Ferguson and Chimes and Eric Gardner and these things are just like, oh, you just, you can hardly even go there because they're so sensitive. Jesus says, are you a bruised reed right now? Because I'm the one who heals. I can go to you and, and I can lift that burden off you and I can put you in relationship with people who are going to listen to your story. And I can help you heal. Isaiah, you know, just a couple of chapters later, he says this about Jesus. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the punishment that made us whole, and get this, by his bruises, we are healed. By his bruises, we are healed. That's the promise that's given to us. That's the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. That our ham-handed attempts at anti-racism are actually used by him to bring healing. That he takes on our sin into himself and he turns it into health. It's amazing. This is what he does. 
And while we're in this in-between time from when he came the first time and when he's going to come again, God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit choose to use us to do this work. He chooses to use us because Jesus didn't just say, I'm the light of the world. What else did he say? You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they set it on a stand and it gets light to the whole house in the same way, he says. In the same way, let your good work shine. Let your anti-racism shine. Let your humility shine. Let your kindness shine. Let your good works shine. So that other people are going to point to you and say, ho, ho. That person's working toward the kingdom. That person's working for the kingdom. Because someday the kingdom will come. Someday we know there will be no more mourning or crying or sadness or racism or sexism or homophobia or classism or ageism. For all of these things will have passed away And our God will be on the throne and he will be saying, now my dwelling is with my people and I will be with them and they will be my God and I will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Behold, he says, I'm making everything new. And so we are going to sing carols and we're going to decorate a tree and we're going to eat cookies Because we believe in the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords who is working in our lives to make everything new and he won't stop until he's done. So we sing praise to that God and we work to build his kingdom. Will you pray with me? Our God, you are mighty and righteous and true. We are so far from that. And so we thank you that on a holy night long ago, a little baby was born to a virgin. What a crazy thing. She laid him in a manger, and angels sang. But it didn't end there. It didn't end there. And so, Jesus, just as your people longed for you to come the first time, we long for you to come again in glory to judge the living and the dead. We know your kingdom will have no end. And so, as you hear our songs of praise, as you hear our carols, hear too our desire, our deepest cry, Maranatha, come, Lord Jesus. Amen. So do you know someone who's got a bruise? Someone on your floor, someone in your house, someone you've read about? Is there some area that needs to have the light of the world set it on fire? Tonight, as a response to the message, as preparation to go to the tree, there are stations, a few up front, a few in the back, and you're invited to go and get a slip of paper and a bulb and a pen, 
And on the paper, I invite you to name someone you know who's carrying a deep root that needs healing. And on the other side, I want you to write where you want the light of the world to set something on fire, to set something ablaze. So on one side, who has a bruise that you know that needs some healing? On the other side, where do you want God to get to work? And then you take this off, and you roll it up, and you put it in there, and then you put the top back on. And then um, you can just sit quietly. And after everyone's done, we'll sing O Holy Night, and then I'll give us instructions about how to go out. If you get a bulb, as I did, that doesn't have um, a hook on top, there are also hooks in the basket, so you may want to grab one of those, okay? So when you're ready, when the Lord leads, stations up front, a bulb, a pen, and a paper. Let's worship God through our written prayers.